Mark Twain wrote a book uh, entitled The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, telling the story is written in 1881, but telling the story about a pauper by the name of Tom Canty. A uh, poor boy, uh, beaten by his father, abused, uh, had really nothing going for him. And uh, in this work of historical fiction, uh, he writes about Prince Edward, the son of King Henry VIII. Well, these two little boys looked exactly like each other, and they uh, began to, to play and to, uh, to get to know one another. And at some point, they actually decide that they should trade places and that the, the poor boy should become the prince and, and the prince should become the poor boy. But what they rapidly found uh, was that the pauper knew nothing of being a prince and the prince knew nothing of being poor. And they saw the difficulties. They were quite convinced in the court that the prince had, had grown mad. He had become crazy because he couldn't remember all the formality and all the things that was required of a prince there in the throne room. They traded places and they wore the right clothes for the different station, the different office. They, in their face, looked the same, but the inward reality was different. And that was the tension, as Twain wrote this book, the tension about these two boys in the wrong place. They looked the part, but it wasn't them. We find Samuel. Samuel, really, that last of the Old Testament judges... Uh, this prophet of God, this man serving in a priestly capacity, the one who had, had anointed King Saul, he is now sent on a mission by God to anoint a new king of Israel. And we pick up with the story, this bit of history, not historical fiction, but historical history, looking at Samuel being appointed by God to anoint the next king of Israel. You'll find it on page 238 in the Pew Bible if you like, but I encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'll give you just a second to find it. I know maybe we don't do a lot of devotions out of First and Second Samuel, but we will find it to be extraordinarily beneficial to our souls. This is God's Word. First Samuel chapter 16, we'll read uh, the first 13 verses. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, Well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him to pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass before him. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. 
Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, for behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and he went to Ramah. Lord, thank you for this, your word. We thank you for this, this moment in history as we see your providence and your goodness fulfilled. Father, we see this wondrous picture of the inward truth of your scripture that you do look to our heart, Father, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But Lord God, yours are higher and better. Indeed, yours are best. May we hear you, may we see you, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wondrous face that the things, the outward things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now I mentioned the book of 1 Samuel. As we look at this first book of Samuel, there is, there's a distinct theme that works its way through it, and that theme is kingship. It's kingship. The, the, the king has been requested by the people of God there. Now, some things to, to keep in mind as we look at an Old Testament narrative like this, some things about what's going on and some things about how we are to read it. First off, the idea of a king uh, was the request of the people. The people were warned about the difficulties of having a king, but the, the children of Israel said, we want a king so we'll be like all the other nations. So you see even uh, the problematic nature of the king by the nature of their request. They're saying, we want to be like everybody else. Because remember, at this time, they had been led by, by Moses, by Joshua, literally led by God through the desert uh, with the pillar of the cloud of fire and the, the smoke. And we see on Mount Sinai, as Moses goes up Mount Sinai, that the people hear the rumbling. They literally hear the voice of God and they see the reflected glory on Moses' face as he comes down off the mountain. And they say, veil your face. We, don't want, we can't stand seeing that. And matter of fact, they tell Moses, will you go and talk to God and then come and talk to us? They want an intercessory. They want an intermediary. They want somebody. They don't want to follow God directly. They want a king. They then see the necessity of judges, the time of the judges uh, following the, uh, uh, the ministry of, of Joshua there, the judges such as, uh, such as Samson such as Ehud, such as Gideon and Deborah, these judges that were there positioned by God to rescue the people in the midst of their sin. And Samuel really comes along at the end of that. But the people are crying out for a king, and so God provides for them a king. This book opens up, we meet a woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah had no children. And we find her singing a song, about the nature of a true king. She gets a vision of what a true king is. And she also is given this child, Samuel. And Samuel then is the one who is chosen by God to anoint the king. And he anoints Saul. We, we read in, in 1 Samuel chapter 9 about Saul. Saul, is, the description is, is breathtaking. He was a man of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, you think about Benjamin, that youngest of the sons of Jacob. He was of this tribe, um, 
And it says that he was, uh, his father was a man of great wealth. And the son's name was Saul. It says in verse nine, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, it says he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from the shoulders upward, he was taller than all of the people. That you would look to a crowd of people and you would pick Saul out because he would tower over them. He was a warrior's warrior. He was a man's man. And, and Samuel anoints him to be the king. And, and we see Saul being great and mighty in so many ways. But he was also an exceedingly prideful man. He, he was a man uh, that was very confident in his abilities, very confident in, in his skills, but also very proud of his reputation and of what others thought about him. We do ultimately see in the ministry and the life of, life of Saul as king, uh, Saul uh, disobeys God. He gets impatient. He offers a sacrifice that was not his place to offer. And he's rebuked because of it. And in, in the rebuke, he then turns to Samuel and Saul says, says, well, I understand and I'm sorry that I did that, but would you please uh, deal with me in private and not before the people. Honor me in front of my men, lest I should lose face in their eyes. You see, he was prideful even in the midst of his sin. We're going to see certainly as we look at King David, we're going to see issues of sin uh, in his life, but we're also going to see how he deals with it in a much different way. But King Saul really is that picture that, that picture of what people would look to and say, that's the king I want. That's, that's what a king should look like. That's, that's the man that, that I would be proud to have stand before me. He, he fit the mold, the armor, the suit. It all fit just right. This uncovers a, a sinful condition we have. That, that is that we are very prideful in appearances. We're very uh, boastful. We're, we put a lot of stock in, in the outward appearance of things. We put a lot of stock in, in how we would look, how we would dress, how we would behave and carry ourselves. We don't have to look any further than this, just some of the basic statistics. According to the American Association of Plastic Surgeons, uh, that just in, in one year alone, uh, there's, uh, there's tens of millions of cosmetic surgeries, not for uh, reconstruction because of surgery or because of accident, that sort of thing, but tens of millions of purely elective cosmetic surgeries so that people's appearance would be enhanced and augmented, that we want our lives to look right even if they're not right. And how many times have we seen folks that have, have put such great stock in the outward appearance of what they are? We think about uh, movie stars and others who, who would want to present themselves as perfect and living the ideal life, and yet we find there to be rot and problems on the inside. So Samuel, Samuel is disappointed. Samuel is sad. As he comes to the situation, we, we read at the very beginning, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you continue to grieve over Saul? Uh, you see, Saul has been rejected by God for being the continuing as king over Israel. But Saul was disappointed. He was disappointed in the way that Saul had turned out. He had put great stock and had great love for Saul, and yet Saul chose to love himself uh, more than the Lord. And so he's been now uh, been commissioned by God to go and anoint the next king. Uh, the Lord then says, though, I will send you to Jesse in Bethlehem. A small little village, we think of it as familiar, but it was this obscure little uh, little village that uh, was of no reputation. 
And Jesse was there. And he says, God says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I like that. He says, I have provided for myself. This will be the Lord's anointed. And indeed, we'll come to know David as a man after God's own heart. And Samuel is concerned. And he says, but God. (laughs) And I think about when we're commissioned by God to do something, we can come up with all the reasons why it would be dangerous we shouldn't do it. He says, but God, if Saul hears about this, that I'm going to anoint another king. You understand he's still on the throne, right? (laughs) If I go, he'll surely kill me. The Lord gives him a disguise. He gives him a reason to go. He gives him this uh, this secondary reason, but one that would mask the true reason behind it. He says, well, take a heifer with you. For it's always appropriate that you would take this for sacrifice, that you would make sacrifice uh, for sins, that you would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Keep in mind what's going on now, and it would not have been odd that he would go uh, to this town to do that because the, the temple has not yet been constructed there in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Jerusalem is not yet the capital of Israel. That all comes during the reign of King David. And so it would not be an odd thing that he's going to this place, that there he could make sacrifice and that he would be able to offer it. Uh, with the people in the region. And so he goes. So Jesse comes to town with a heifer. And the elders come to him and they say, what's going on? What's going on? This uh, th- this priest, this representative of the king uh, has come to the city. They come trembling. They're concerned with what are the uh, uh, the reasons behind this? Why is there... Uh, why have you come here? They're, they're worried that there might be difficult uh, motives and, and reasons behind it. And he says, well, I've come peaceably. I've come to make sacrifice. And please come with me that we might share this sacrifice together. And they do so. And so then he asked Jesse, he said, I want to meet your sons. Uh, I, I want to meet your sons. We, we don't see any indication uh, that he is explaining to, to Jesse or to anybody what's going on. But he is meeting the sons of Jesse. He has eight sons, David being the youngest, and he begins to parade them before. Now he, we meet Eliab uh, the first. Now we need to look and say if, if, if Eliab was to be the next king, he would surely come to be known as King Saul the second. This is, this is a man of, of great stature. What does it say right here? Uh, it says, this is surely man's, uh, God's anointed, we see in verse 6. But the Lord says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or don't look at his stature, his height. That's not my man. That's not the man that I've chosen. Now, it's kind of interesting. Eliab, the oldest, the number one son, this, this man among men, certainly he'd be the one that the Lord, the Lord would put up there to, to, to right the wrongs of Saul, to lead the nation uh, in, in, in great godliness and faithfulness, and a strong leader, a man who would stand before the people well. And even his name, Eliab, that literally means God is my father. There's, there's a nobility about Eliab. And, and Samuel even looks and says, this is it. This is the man. God says no. Well, Jesse calls the number two son. Number two son. He's, 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 he's pretty impressive as well. And brings Abinadab. That, that means, now I think Jesse might have had a preference for this one. Uh, Abinadab, his name literally means my father is noble. The first one says, my, God is my father, is my father is noble. Uh, well, certainly if, if King Abinadab was up there, then they would say, well, who is your father? Well, that's Jesse, the father of the king. And so there's a lot of pride, there's a lot of excitement about this. Comes before Samuel and says, no, not this one either. Uh, Shema and the other sons, they come seven times over. The sons of Jesse are paraded before Samuel, strong, capable. 
the Lord says, I've not chosen this man. Now pause to consider what's going on. There you've gathered for the sacrifice. The family's been consecrated. It's a big family gathering. It's an exciting time. It is a, probably a once-in-a-lifetime thing uh, that Samuel would have come to this region to make sacrifice. And everybody's gathered around. And what an exciting festivity it would have been. This great time to come with this great priest and the sacrifice to God would be made. But there was a forgotten son. I say forgotten. I mean, Jesse knew where he was. But just think, pause for a moment. There's something needs doing. The sheep need tending. They can't be left abandoned in the field. And so, so what shall we do? Send the youngest. Send the baby. Send David. David overlooked, lonely in the field. I can just see him picking grass, throwing rocks, dumb sheep. One of the most exciting things to happen in my family, and I'm not there. Sorry, David, somebody's got to watch the flock. We'll tell you about it after it's all done. Samuel looks about there in the house of Jesse. He says, is this it? Is there nobody else? And your sons are impressive, but the Lord really is looking for something else. You have to have another son. And Jesse says, well, sure, there's, there's David. He's out with the sheep. I warn you, he smells a lot like sheep. He's small. He's young. Samuel says, I want you to bring him to me now. As a matter of fact, when it says there, we will not sit down until he comes. What he's saying is, we're not going to eat the sacrificial meal until we deal with this. So get him here quickly. I want to see David. And so David shows up. We see the description of David. He was not a, uh, you know, a homely kid. He was ruddy, his complexion from being out in the wind and out in the, in the weather. But he was a handsome young man, but certainly not the impressive uh, physical stature of Eliab. And the Lord says to Samuel, this is my man. This is the man that be anointed king over Israel. And so Samuel, it says, verse 13, and look at the way this, is, this is, is worded. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil. This was the oil that he brought, the oil to anoint, uh, to, to physically apply to the next king. He took the horn of oil and he anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Now, that's a little phrase, that little prepositional phrase there can get overlooked, but just imagine what this must have been like. The confusion of the brothers, the oldest saying, wait a minute, did, did Samuel not understand I'm the oldest? I've been a dab saying, really? Look, look at this. And David, really? And Samuel anointing him and proclaiming that he would be the next king of God's people. It's an amazing thing right there in the midst. And we saw, like I said, Eliab, his name is noble. God is my father. Abinadab, speaking of even a royal sound to it, uh, my father is noble. But what does David mean? When we meet David, now names are significant. Names mean something. The word David simply means beloved. Beloved. Why? God loves David. He is beloved. And it then says, it says that as, as David is appointed, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. A great strengthening rush of the power of God upon David from that day forward, it says. And we need to understand he's going to need it. 
One of the best commentators dealing with the life of David in First and Second Samuel is a seminary professor by the name of Dale Ralph Davis. And Dr. Davis says this, he says, No longer does the Spirit touch David than he is catapulted into endless trouble. The Spirit comes and then the trouble begins. Think about it. Saul will love David for a moment, but as soon as he starts getting more praise than the king, he seeks to kill him. Matter of fact, he seeks to kill him six different times. What else do we encounter? The battlefield where he is put to the test. Can this little boy stand uh, for the whole nation of Israel before this giant who chews up little kids like this and spits them out? He's going to have to go and hide in the wilderness to keep from being killed. He's going to be a fugitive. He's going to be a target. And so we see David needing the Spirit of God. Yes, the Lord looks to the heart and select in David, and David was not what others were looking for in a king. But understand this too as we look at this particular passage, particularly when it comes to us following the call of God, is that yes, the, the people did not look for David. They didn't think David was what they're looking for in a king. But as the anointed king of Israel, life is not what David expects. Life is not what David was looking for. For the next 15 years, he won't be pampered in a palace. The next 15 years, he will not be heralded as a general on the battlefield. For the next 15 years, he'll live as a fugitive, an outcast, one whose life is always a target, one who is really running the risk in every moment of being killed simply because of who he is again and again. God won't give David what he expects, but he'll give him what he needs. Give him what he needs to be the king that Israel needs. Now, there's one thing that I want us to do as we, we wrap up this introduction to King David and as we begin to examine the life of King David. Here's the danger of looking at Old Testament narrative. Professor Brian Chapel, uh, former president of Covenant Theological Seminary, in teaching his class on preaching, uh, would explain what he referred to as the deadly bees. The deadly bees have nothing to do with buzzing critters that Chuck Burns would make, get delicious honey from. The, the deadly bees are to read a passage of Scripture and, and to walk away from it saying, well, I just need to be like David. To read another passage and say, I just need to be like Joseph. Another passage, I just need to be like Paul. You see, the admonition is not to being, but uh, and becoming like other people. It's to understand how what they are doing prompt us to know Jesus. Jesus explains it in that same way on the, the road to Emmaus as he's walking with a man named Cleopas and another friend, and, and they're explaining, and, and, and Jesus goes back and he, he unpacks the Old Testament and he shows how it points to him. As he's confronting those who are accusing him falsely of, of going against Abraham, uh, Jesus was the one that said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was glad to see my day. These things point to me. We look at a passage like this and we need to understand that what we come to learn of this king who has a heart like God is how it points us to the true king, the lasting king, the eternal king. We will see again and again as we look at David how it's preparing us to understand, to recognize, and to love the true king, David's descendant, Jesus. We see very clearly in this passage before us the description of Jesus 
uh, as it's reflected in Isaiah chapter 53. It says that Jesus had no form, He had no majesty that we should look to Him, and He had no beauty that we should desire Him. It speaks about really what's been called the divine incognito of Jesus, that if Jesus were to walk in the room, people would really take no account of Him. It wasn't that He looked the part, it was that He was the man, that His heart was the heart of God. Two other things we see in this passage. It's two different translations of the same word. What did Samuel get called to do? What was he doing there in Bethlehem? What's the verb? He went there to do what? Anoint. Anoint. Very good. So it, we then, it, it speaks about that David is the Lord's anointed. Now in the Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word there is Mashiach. Well, thank you, Brandon. That's great. Mashiach. Mashiach. You see, it's the same word, the same root from which we get Messiah. The Lord's anointed. Now, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, so that when Greek was the language of the day, the Septuagint is the version that we call it, that word is not the Hebrew, Mashiach. In the Greek, it's translated the Christos. David is not the Christ. But David is the one who comes in anticipation of the Christ. That that Jesus would come from this priestly line, that line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, through David to the true king, the king forever and ever. And we need to understand that when we look at the, the person of Jesus, we need to understand that in his day, he was not what people were looking for, but he is what they needed. Jesus was not externally what they wanted. He's one of us, they said. We know his brothers and sisters. How can he be something special? He spends all that time with tax collectors and sinners. That doesn't sound like a king. He, he certainly spends a, a lot of time eating and drinking with people, celebrating with them in, in joyful fellowship with them. That doesn't sound like a serious Savior or Messiah. Certainly the Messiah should not suffer. We read that He is the stone that the builders have rejected. But God is made to be that chief and final cornerstone. We are prepared in part by looking at David to see the king who would come. And especially as we approach this time of Thanksgiving and the time of Advent and Christmas, as we look to the coming of Jesus, we we see how God is caring for His people in the moment of David. For the day of Jesus. How do we walk out of here reflecting on this text is to know that God has not called us to go out there and look. Just look like Christians. Dress right. Decorate your house right. Drive your car right. Just just do all those things which a Christian ought to do and, and you'll be just fine. Man might look to those things, but God is looking to your heart and saying, now if your heart is right, other things will fall in line, but the heart has to be there. And we're going to see David. David's heart is not perfect, but it is a heart uh, that is uh, drawn to God and that can be reclaimed in the midst of sin that God would be glorified. I encourage you in going forth that we would, would look and say, Lord God, I've, I may not be the handsomest, I may not be the tallest, I may not be the fanciest, I may not be the prettiest, uh, but Lord God, I desire to be the most Christ-like. And where would that be seen? It would be seen in my heart.
Lord, you see that. May it be real. And may it then radiate through all that I do. For your glory. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for, for this, your word. We thank you for introducing us to uh, a priest, a prophet even, who would, who would grieve that a king was not what he ought to be. But Lord, that you have called the king, this next king, King David, Father, to lead your people because you love your people. And to give them a king that though his sin would be great, his repentance would be far greater. And his Savior, to whom he points, would be greater still. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women after your heart, that you would look to our heart and see Christ there. For these things we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.